Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by MX Exploration, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. MX Exploration is exploring its 100% owned Perone Gold Project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, amxexploration.com. And now, here's Ellis Martin with David Morgan. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Morgan, a precious metals aficionado armed with degrees in finance and engineering. He created the MorganReport.com website and originated the Morgan Report covering economic news, overall financial health of the global economy, currency problems, and the key reasons for investing in the resource sector. David considers himself a big-picture macroeconomist whose main job is education, educating people about honest money and the benefits of a sound financial system. David, welcome back to the program. It's great to speak with you today. Ellis, it's good to be with you here in a gloomy northwest <laughs> day up here, probably sunny down there in California. We have an overcast sky with a little bit of sun over the Pacific Ocean in Malibu, and I don't want to make you jealous. I think we'll just move on. We've been talking about currency and gold and the markets for you and I 10 years, you probably forever. And what I didn't want to do today is do any suppositions about the next year, the next two years, because really nothing's, as far as I'm concerned, nothing's changed in the last 10 years. And I did a little bit of research on the internet before this interview, as recently as five or six years ago, or as long as five or six years ago, whichever way you want to look at it, there was speculation about where currency would go during the next 10, 15, 25 years. And I didn't really find any answers except for the dollar was going to remain strong as a futurist. Let's put on a futurist hat for the moment. We're all prognosticators and we're often wrong. But having said that, let's speculate a little bit. You're an expert. You're an analyst. What is the future of money, David? Yeah, well, certainly not an expert on everything, but I've certainly looked at the money question my whole life, as anyone that knows me well knows. And I do spend a fair amount of time researching and studying and learning about this next move. In fact, I just did two lectures, not back-to-back, but close. I did one at the Money Show called Money, Past, Present, and Future. And I just finished a similar lecture at the Red Pill Conference in Hartford, Connecticut, same title, Money, Past, Present, and Future. They weren't identical, but a lot of the basis for the talk was the same. So having said that, it's very apparent to me that where we are going in the next monetary system is to be determined. It's not a known. And we are in the age of the end of the age of empire, which means that the monetary system is going to change. And the direction that is changing is obvious for anyone who does even a cursory look that it's going to be a cashless system. It's going to most likely be electronic only. And it's going to be probably, on a lot of aspects, even a greater control mechanism than money is right now. Money right now, if you believe what I believe, and certainly the empirical data bears this out, is money is power. And with that power, you can buy political persuasion. You can you know, basically buy senators and congressmen if you get right down to brass tacks. So is that going to get better or worse? And in one aspect, it's going to get worse. Because when you go to a full-blown cashless society where everything is on, let's say, a blockchain as an example, and every transaction is known, 
then you have a great deal of control. You have all that data, so you know what the proclivity is of a certain individual, what they buy, sell, how often, you know, how often they go to the movies, how often they get a pizza, how often, I mean, all this stuff. So I don't like it, and yet that's one aspect of it. That's one. There are others. Now, there are some private blockchain systems that really are keeping your anonymity. Now, your anonymity is one thing, and I'm going to say privacy is another. Well, once it's on the blockchain, it's immutable. It's there forever. Now, they may not know what your IP address is, and they may not know who it is, but the transaction is still there. And depending on, you know, big data, quantum computers, everything else, could they drill down far enough and find you and the answer? Most likely, yes. But I don't want to scare people. I'd say that we're seeing the age of competing currencies. We're seeing alternatives. And the one that really concerns me at this point in time, and it's brand new, and it's just being talked about by, let's say, people more studied and more qualified than me, although I've already started to form an opinion, is this one with Facebook, this Libra thing. And this is really, really concerning to me because it is, one, a database of, what, 2.7 billion people or something along those lines on Facebook. I mean, this could potentially have more power than J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America and Deutsche Bank combined. I mean, this is a huge database. And it's probably going to be pretty convenient. And it's not going to be private at all. All that data is going to be gathered with the Facebook softwares. And it will be something that could be easily adopted or readily adopted by, let's say, the sleepy public that doesn't really care. All they know is it's convenient. They're going to be able to use it. It's not going to be international. It is going to be restrictive to certain areas. In other words, China's already saying thanks, but no thanks. Russia's saying thanks, but no thanks. So this Facebook interface, this Facebook cryptocurrency, I put in quotation marks because it really isn't a cryptocurrency. It's an alternative payment system. It's something to be really concerned about in several ways. One, the privacy, and secondly, how pervasive it could become rather quickly because of the power of Facebook. So these are concerns. I mean, there's really going to be three types of money, or that's what we're going toward. We're having private money, which is gold and silver, or really privately, you've got your Federal Reserve note or your euro bill or your you know, whatever currency you got a piece of paper for, and you still almost all the major currencies have a you know paper representative, that's pretty anonymous. And if I buy you a drink at, after a, a mining conference and I do it with cash, all you know is you can buy, I bought you a drink, but there's no record of it. The bartender doesn't, you know, get my IP address or know where I live or anything else. So there's that part. There is still private money. Then you have your blockchains that basically keep your data or know your data, and then you have the current system. So you have these competing, what they call competing currencies. And I'm not going to go on. I think I probably stirred probably three or four questions for me, so I'll stop there. You know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with one of the creators of information architecture on the internet. And I was asking her, at what point do we lose our privacy entirely? I mean, you and I can look up something on the internet, on, on Google or whatever the, uh, the search engine is on our phone, and it turns up as an ad on Facebook for the solution. And you don't want that. So if you're using a Libra type currency system through Facebook, if you're paying for that drink at that bar, if you're buying me a drink at that bar, and certainly we've sat at a bar and had drinks together during our years, the system knows exactly what you're doing, where you are, and what's to keep them from marketing that information to other bars and restaurants or doctors, and all of a sudden you're an alcoholic for 
some reason and you're getting invitations to attend a retreat somewhere. It's just endless. And I like your comments on that. And also, does the U.S. dollar still act as a world reserve? for currency in that scenario that you described earlier? Great questions, I think. Thank you. So I'll go in reverse order. Is the dollar still reserve currency? And the answer is yes, barely. It's being usurped left and right, not only by the blockchain, but also primarily with other nation states that are exited the dollar to a great extent, which is the BRICS countries and primarily Russia and China doing a lot of deals in yuan only. So the dollar is dying as a reserve currency. Doesn't mean it's dead. Doesn't mean it's going to zero. Even in a currency reset or a currency crisis, I doubt the dollar is going to absolute zero, but it's going to go lower in value and along with all the other currencies, really. And so there'll be, since people will be screaming for a solution. Back to the more important question is, you know, this idea of knowing every transaction and what your spending habits are. This is going to merge with what the Chinese have already started, which is this social credit system. Wow. So as every transaction is, is known, then it's going to get to that point, and, and I'm going to digress here slightly, and I'll probably lose some people, but there used to be this, oh, this joke that was on the internet, probably, I don't know, I'm going to guess 10 years ago, was a joke about a guy calling into a, his local pizza parlor and ordering a pizza over the phone. And the conversation basically went, you know, this is Joe Blow, I want to buy this pizza. And he says, no, you can't, because we know your cholesterol level is this. Exactly. You eat too much anyway. You're not allowed to buy more than, you know, one pizza a month and all this stuff. Well, this is the social credit system. Even though that's a joke, this is the direction it's going. You spend too much on, as you said, alcohol. You spend too much on clothes. And they are going to, and they are already doing this primarily, as I said, in China, where you not only have to toe the party line, literally, anything that's quote-unquote anti-government or anti-their system, you will get a lower social credit score, which means that you cannot do certain transactions. For an example, you can't fly first class, or if you're really low, you can't fly at all, or you can't get a five-star hotel, you can only get a three-star or lower, and on and on it goes. And the really bad part about it is not only is it controlling your life through social system tied to the economic system, but if you have a low social credit score, it basically isolates you rather quickly because if you and I are friends, I'll say, my, my social credit score is going down well, you're less likely to associate with me because last time that we went to the bar together and saw that transaction and said, well, you know what? I think uh, Morgan spends too much there. He's got a lower social credit score and you would get a lower one just by associating with me. You know, I've actually it, seen a program like that on, uh, I think it's Black Mirrors where they're actually doing that, depending on who you associate with. And you can actually critique somebody else. You can comment on someone else who's not behaving properly and their social score will drop. And this is not Orwellian. This is or it may be, but it's actually going to happen, at least in China, home to 1.5 billion people. And then we're how many steps away from that in the U.S.? Not many. I mean, people say, well, it's never going to happen. There's some that say never here. And there's others that say, oh, come on. And then there's others, well, maybe. And, you know, so you got a, a variety of opinions across the board. First thing to remember is if you use the credit system in the United States, which most people do to get a mortgage or finance a car or finance a washing machine, for crying out loud, all have some type of FICA score, which is basically what your credit rating is. Now, you take someone like AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Do we have to? And you'll okay, find that her, her FICA score is somewhere like 432. 
which is, you know, she doesn't pay her bills. But, of course, they put her on a finance committee. So sorry for my digression, but it shows you how absolutely, totally, completely insane this whole system has become. So back on point, I said all that to say this. We already have it. We just don't have it on a quote-unquote social basis. We have it on a credit basis, but they're merging, as I said. You know, like, you, like we're pointing out here, depending on who you associate with or what you do with, with quote-unquote your money, and it's monitored, and it's like, well, you eat too much, you don't eat healthy, you drink too much, you don't drink enough, you socialize at the wrong type of sporting events, you go to rallies that are not socially acceptable, you read books that are uh, not in line with the party line, and all of this stuff. And this is really, really concerning because privacy isn't about being a drug dealer or doing something illicit or anything. Privacy is freedom. And this is the thing, this is another obfuscation that happens with the mainstream political powers is that, well, if you want privacy, you're, you're a criminal. So they make this leap that if you're doing something, you want privacy, well, so you must be doing something wrong. Not at all. So it could be. That's a case. So do you but think. it's not all cases. I'm gonna it doesn't s- apply in all cases. I'm going to step my foot in the abyss here because, sure. I, and I've never done it really like I'm going to do it now. Do you think this technology is going to be co-opted by the progressive and the socialist in this country that are wanting to decide what we're all going to do? It already has. It already it has. Is, you know, Facebook basically has already implemented it as well as Twitter, as well as uh, YouTube. And you know as well as me that they've taken a lot of channels that are, let's say, political activists that are screaming for freedom and freedom of thought and freedom to express yourself and all the stuff that's purportedly protected by the First Amendment's gone away. And the reason that so far they've gotten away with it is they say, well, we're a private corp, so we don't have to adhere to the First Amendment. We are allowed as a private corporation, a private entity, to determine what we want on our platform or not. Just like a brick and mortar store and your you know, local Main Street says, you know, we have the right to refuse service to anyone and being a private company, they do. So this is what they are doing. So it's already taking hold. And I know you knew that answer, Ellis. Yeah, but, but I still I had think, to, I still had to put it out there so we could actually yeah. people could hear this conversation. Yeah, I think you're also implying in the question, or at least the way I'm interpreting it, is how much further is it going to go? I mean, this is going to go where, and it is. I mean, I think where we started, which is this Libra thing with Facebook. So they're merging not only their power to socially direct your thinking, and either you correctly think like them or you don't. And if you don't, you're persona non grata. Now they're adding in the biggest motivator of all for almost all humans, and that's money on top of it. So now you might not agree with something on Facebook, but now since you're using the Libra system to make all your payments and you got a, you know, auto set up for your mortgage, for example. And let's say you disagree with something on their platform. You are going to say you could, it implies strongly that you just keep your mouth shut because if you reach out and say, you know, I really disagree with this and it's really gnawing at me, but you know, if you do it, you might lose your ability to keep their system monetarily. So that's a lot of power and what I consider the wrong hands, because no one should be able to tell anyone, you know, what they should say, think, or do. I'm certainly for voluntarism. I'm certainly for a moral objective. So I'm certainly for natural law. And, you know, if you do something wrong, that on the greater scheme of things will be corrected one way or the other. In other words, I'm not a, as thou will do anything and it's okay. No, 
there are prices to pay for everything. The point I'm trying to make is that you should have free will to be able to decide what you determine for yourself to be in your own best interest or someone else's best interest. You don't have to be dictated to as far as how you should you know, go about your day on what you should think, what you can say, well, who you can associate with, where you can spend your money and why. All of that is just vastly control. And this is the Orwellian system that we constantly refer to, which is accurate. We're basically big brothers, that boot stepping on our head forever. And if you don't do what they want, they'll just keep press, putting more pressure on you. And it's unfortunate. I mean, I never really thought about it getting this far because when I was an early adopter of the internet, you know, I didn't even dream up anything like a Facebook, you know, and I mean, I'm old enough to know there was, uh, I think it was called MySpace. My kids were on it. I care less about, I care less about Facebook, really. But that's me personally. The point is that these social platforms, and why are they so valuable? I mean, what real social merit does Facebook have? I mean, I get it. Look, if you want to look at your grandkids, and especially if you're, you know, older, it's a great place to see those pictures of the new grandson or daughter or the family or the family outing or so-and-so bought a new boat or they got a promotion. I, you know, that's all cool. You know, I get that part of it. But when they infiltrate your thinking politically and determine for you ahead of time what's right and wrong and what you can say and what can't say and what's hateful and what isn't hateful and who's correct and who isn't correct in a supposedly open public dialogue, we've got massive problems. And we do. We have massive problems. So I'm thinking the Politburo, both the Chinese and the Soviet Politburo, have actually won. Their plan is... Uh has been implemented and is succeeding. A footnote to that is some of these politicians, uh, you mentioned credit scores, maybe they don't have them, but yet they're going to implement these changes on our society. Exactly. And the to further point again is that with this Libra system, they kind of combine it. So you've got the politically correct speech from Facebook and you also are now using their currency system or their monetary system they could put additional pressure because the way I try to outline it is maybe this isn't so good or maybe I really do disagree with this in a really big way. You know, this is something I'm not really adamant about. You know, you're almost an activist, but then you have to consider, well, if I start to speak out, not only am I going to be socially ostracized, it's going to affect my bank account as well, which, as I said earlier, is a big motivator. It's like, well, I think I'll just keep my mouth shut so I can keep my payment system intact. Quebec, Canada is one of the most mining-friendly jurisdictions in the world. That's where you'll find Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex during their 2018-2019 drilling program on their 100% owned Perone Gold Project has returned multiple super high-grade gold intersects. These include approximately 9.5 ounces per ton of gold over 1.35 meters, 20.5 ounces per ton of gold over 0.8 meters, and 7.6 ounces per ton gold over 0.65 meters. Visible gold has been intersected in virtually every hole of the high-grade zone exploration program. Amex is led by a very senior and talented team of mine finders and mine financiers that have invested their own capital next to shareholders' capital and are committed to spending shareholder money wisely to build value. The company recently completed a $5 million financing and brought on two large investors, Eric Sprott and Commodity Capital. Amex can drill year-round and recently added a second drill to allow for regional exploration and targeted drilling on the eastern gold zone of the Perone property, which should continue to yield ample news flows throughout the balance of 2019. Follow this exciting gold discovery story by going to amexexploration.com. 
So at some point, does it become criminal to use cash? And then again, gold and silver, if you're off the system, if you're off the grid, if you detach yourself from social media and paying with your phone, Apple Pay or cash or whatever the app is, or Libra, like you said, are you then ostracized completely and not able to function as a credit worthy human being in this country? I think that's the direction they're pushing. Yes. Oh. Okay, good times. Yeah. Good times, David. <laughs> Let's rein it into 2019 and, and 2020 and 2021. If this is the case, how can we sell gold? There's always a, a market that springs up. So there's always, they'll call it a black market, but it's really a free market. So even though they outlaw it, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So there will be transactions that are private that both parties agree to that are basically is free will on both sides. But they will not be legal, quote unquote, because of the dictates of the power structure. I'm going to digress again, but the country is founded. It was, you know, we held these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And I don't want to go through the white black thing because, you know, it's just not worth it. I don't have time. But the idea is simple. It's that there is a higher authority than man and that those laws are natural laws. So they were purportedly giving the best ability of a human being to objectively enact a government that protected the natural law. That's what it was all about. The government is our servant, not the other way around. So when you say that you have an issue, it would be your God-given constitutionally secured rights. And that's what government's function was, was to provide and protect your God-given or higher authority, if you will, or natural law, if you want that word, you don't want to use the word God. So your natural law rights were protected by government, and that was its sole function. Now look at where we are. We're about 180 degrees from that. Business as usual until uh, things change and we morph into whatever we're going to become? Well, I think you need activists. You need people like me that are willing to tell it like it is, and there's certainly a lot more well-known, more, let's say, well-followed voices out there. But aren't you speaking to the choir when you speak? Me too, for that matter. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, at the Red Pill Conference, there aren't too many people that disagree with my opinion there. But you look at, you know, what that percentage of the population is, and it's absolutely minuscule. But the idea is what's powerful, not me or the messenger. It's the idea. And so the goal is to spread that idea far and wide and wake people up. I forget who said it, but I don't agree with what you say, but I'll defend to my death your right to say it. And we go down the rabbit hole and we don't have time in this interview. We can do it some other time. But this whole idea of hate speech is ridiculous. There's free speech. If you find it hateful... I'm sorry, you know, you can, you can have that opinion, you can be upset, you can scream and rant and you can, you know, send me an email and all this stuff. Okay, that's all right. But there is no such thing, really. There's free speech. Free speech means free. So while you're allowed to say whatever now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't use good judgment, etc. But it's no one's right to tell you what's hateful or isn't. What's something that's hateful to one person may not be to another. I mean, the old idea, the adage that you hear all the time is one person's idea of a terrorist is the other person's idea of a freedom fighter. It's depending on what side of the coin you're coming from. I'm going to throw this wrench in this conversation for a minute sure. just because. When you're talking about a population like 1.5 billion people or more in India with an equal population of, of that order, uh, how does free Free speech and free thinking really work with that size of population. How does it work? How do you control that? You can't. So you have right. to be sort of dictatorial. 
Well, in a way, yeah, I, that's another conversation. But first of all, I was thinking the other one you said it. Now I get where you're coming from. But, you know, you can't really control it. I mean, you can control it on a platform. You know, like Facebook, you get kicked off. You're using hate speech. You no longer, you're pursuing an ungrado or closing your account. Okay. That's obvious. But as far as can you control it out there in the population, the answer is yes and no. You can brainwash enough people that if they say something, quote unquote, anti-government, then someone that heard that is going to get some brownie points or, or cash reward of some type if they report it to the authorities. So there is the ability basically to close it down across the board. On the other hand, when you're a farmer out in the middle of nowhere and there isn't any real, let's say, control mechanism available, it's probably a little easier to speak your mind and not have any repercussions for doing so. David, how can we find you, those of us that are hearing your voice for the first time? Well, the easiest place to go is just our main website, themorganreport.com. Get on our free email list. And any interview I do like this, I put out basically the day or two after it's posted. For everyone's benefit to listen to or not, pass on if they like it and, you know, stop if they don't. And I don't expect everybody to agree with me. In fact, the whole thing about tolerance and diversity is that we have different ideas. But we should listen to both sides. I'm really, I don't want to say proud. I don't. I don't think I'm that prideful, but I do like the fact that I've always, to the best of my ability, looked at both sides. I mean, I've watched a lot of documentaries that come from the left, and I don't lean really either way. I'm not really a centrist either. I'm more libertarian if you want to put a label on me. I don't even like that label. Freedom is what I'm about, and freedom is something that we're losing a great deal of across the board. And it's really sad that people that are, let's say, convinced that their thinking is correct may not even be their own thinking, yet they are absolutely convinced that they're free thinkers when really what has happened is that they've been programmed by the system, meaning basically television and the authority figures and the education system to such a level that, as you said earlier, and it was very, very profound, is that they've won. The whole Politburo has taken over basic thought processes of a vast, you know, variety of people on the planet, regardless of what stripe they think they are politically, they're basically in groupthink, and groupthink is what they actually profess, and yet if you stop them in an individual basis and ask them a simple question of, are you a free thinker, is that your own thoughts, they would swear to their grave that it is their own thinking, when it absolutely isn't. And in many cases, these are Really good people, highly educated individuals, folks that you would call your friends. Sure. A lot of friends on the left. I just try to avoid the politics thing. They know where I'm at. Because you can have a lot of good people. Well, I have family members that are very to the left. You know, I don't get into the politics very often. I try to avoid it. But because, you know, when you look to someone else for a solution for you, I mean, I'm a big believer in individualism, individual rights. That's how the country was set up, as, again, as I digress into that idea. But it's true if you, you do any study. And so I have the right to be me, and they have the right to be them. So I just look at it as, okay, you're okay now. For me to tell them what I just said on this public broadcast, that they've basically been brainwashed by the system, I probably wouldn't bring that to their attention because I already know what the outcome would be. Again, they'd argue to their grave that they're free thinkers and they thought this all up on their own and they read this periodical and they study so-and-so and didn't you know this book written by uh, big New Brzezinski is like the Bible as far as where we should be going and what's wrong with you type of thing. And it's like, okay, I, I disagree. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I digress probably as far as I've gone during this 
program, but it's important for people to really assess. And the hardest thing for a human to do is really assess themselves objectively. I mean, for you to really get a clear picture of how others see you, that's almost impossible. We all have these little buffers and these mechanisms that we hold dear, we don't really think about that put us in this light in our own heads that we look like this to the world when maybe the world sees us much, much differently than we perceive to ourselves. It's very difficult to be objective about yourself. Do you think that's an American problem? More so than other countries, it is. We're very obsessed. This is a generalization, broad brush, not everybody. But we're very concerned about how we look and what others think. Whereas if you really have a high self-esteem and a high value structure and you know what really is, you're much less concerned about those two things. Well, David, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We got into it a little deep today. I'm glad we did. But these important issues, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me today in the program. Well, thanks for one of the more intellectually stimulating interviews I've had in a long time, Ellis. It was really fun. And I hope I woke some people up because it doesn't matter at the end of the day how much gold or silver or fiat or Bitcoin you own. If you've lost your freedom, you've lost some truly priceless. That's the main message. Well, and I think you can lose your freedom and not even know it. Maybe we've hey, already gone no, down that rabbit well hole. Well said. That's right. Yeah. David, thanks again. Talk to you soon. Okay. Cheers. I've been chatting with analyst, investor, and newsletter writer David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. And download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. This segment of the Ellis Martin Report has been sponsored by Amex Exploration. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol AMX and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as AMXEF. Amex Exploration is exploring its 100% owned our own gold project in Quebec, Canada, featuring super high-grade intersects. Go to their website, AmexExploration.com. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin Newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with David Cole, the president and CEO of EMX Royalty Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange and on the New York Stock Exchange as EMX. EMX is a precious and base metals royalty company whose investors are provided with discovery, development, and commodity price optionality while limiting exposure to the risk inherent to operating companies. EMX has a sizable global portfolio of assets and has currently over $70 million in the treasury and no debt. Dave, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alice. Happy to be here. Tell us all about EMX Royalty Corporation. I'd be happy to do that. First of all, royalties are phenomenal financial instruments. They provide the owner with continued income coming from the production of commodities and metals, and we specifically focus on metal royalties with excellent optionality that adds to the value of the instrument, including the upside in commodity prices over time, and most importantly, the upside of continued discovery and advancement of engineering techniques and metallurgical techniques, which enhance the production of the property over time, and that's all upside to the royalty holder. My passion has been to accumulate royalties around the world, and I've been working on that through EMX Royalty Corporation for 16 years. So in other words, you're a project generator, but you really never entirely let go of the project. There's always revenue coming into you. That is correct. And let me just elaborate on that a little bit also. Sure, please. We are a prospect generation shop in that we go out and acquire prospective mineral rights. We add value 
by building economic geologic models. And then we sell that onto an industry hungry for prospective mineral rights, where the counterparty advances that through exploration, development, and production. And the commercial terms of such always include a production royalty. And so we've been growing a portfolio of royalties around the world. We have exposure to over 2 million acres of mineral rights around the world via that business model. We also just outright buy existing royalties to augment the growth of our royalty portfolio as well. And by doing that, you acquire the royalty and then you expand on the resource, adding additional value to the royalty and then parlaying it off again. Is that correct? So the bulk of the work that is adding the resources to the property is the counterparty's responsibility. So we acquire the mineral rights. We add value by building geologic models and say this area looks super prospective for gold or copper. We sell that on the gold and copper company, then invest piles of money into the property, advancing it all to our benefit as we sit back with a 1% or 2% overriding production royalty. And uh, we have no further financial obligation. That's one of the fantastic aspects of owning a royalty. So you're exposed to the upside. And we have the diversity of having exposure across multiple commodities, multiple geological terrains, multiple countries around the world. So you yourself aren't necessarily involved in development with regard to drilling and never production. You're developing these models. So therefore, your cost of doing business is very low compared to other exploration and development companies. You're a fast learner, Alice. Yeah, that's it right there. I'm telling you, it's a great business. And the investing public can simply see that by looking at the track record of the royalty companies and how well the royalty company stock prices have performed relative to the producers. And it has to do with the less risky allocation of capital. The amount of money that we have to spend in order to develop a royalty is quite small relative to the amount of money that one would spend to develop a mine. And the risk exposure is vastly less. It's an excellent business model. It's an excellent sector. And the royalty companies have continued to outpace the producers. Well, you're saying it's an excellent sector and you're one of the few people that's saying that actually. And that's because you really, for the most part, haven't seen any kind of downturn as it affects EMX over the last few years have you? Well, in the last three years, we're up three and a half times. Yeah. So we've had a good run. There's been persistent insider buying during that entire time frame, And that insider buying continues. I just bought some more stock a couple of weeks ago. In my experience, when the CEO is buying the stock, that's a good sign. All of my trades are reported on CDAR, S-C-D-A-R.com, which have all of the company filings where you can see all insider trades. I believe we're still demonstrably undervalued, actually, at relative to the portfolio that we have and the cash in the bank, no debt. But most importantly, the business model and the team. It's a rock star business model with a rock star team. Well, it has to be strong on geology. You have to have a powerful geo team, otherwise you couldn't really exist like you do. No doubt about it. Economic geology is our alpha, and that's what separates us from the crowd. And the bulk of our intellectual talent base is guys with PhDs in economic geology, in addition to a really good in-house attorney to make sure that our deals are very well written and a super sharp finance guy that writes a heck of a spreadsheet. So you're going to walk away from a deal if it doesn't meet the criterion that you've got. Oh my gosh, we have the fail fast team. Because we're cashed up, we're sitting here with over 70 million Canadian dollars in the bank and no debt. So we're being shown a plethora of opportunities right now. We've got a very sharp team of engineers, geologists, and finance people, legal people that are sorting through those opportunities that are being shown to us in a down market relative to the overall natural resource sector. And we're in a strong position, which is an enviable place to be. We fail the opportunities that we don't like very quickly. 
so that we can focus on the better ones. We've got some big filters in place. It's working nicely. Well, let's talk about some of those larger assets that you have. One involves Newmont and Nevada, correct? Yeah, that's our best currently producing cash flowing royalty. It's a gold mine operated by Newmont Mining Corporation in the northern portion of the Carlin Trend. It's actually pieces of multiple mines there. And the namesake of the royalty is the Leeville royalty. Newmont has three big shafts to develop underground infrastructure. They've been producing gold there for years. That royalty, since we've owned it, is paid over 12 million US dollars. And we're delighted to have that royalty. We're delighted to have Newmont working on that property, drilling off new resources. They continue to announce some nice discovery holes, expanding on the known resources on that property over time. It's a great place in the world to be. You know, Northern Nevada is one of the most gold endowed regions of North America, if not the world. Speaking of the world, where else are some of your assets? So we have a company maker in Serbia, and that, there's an interesting backstory to that. Early on, after the Balkan Wars, I came into Serbia with the predecessor company of VMX when we were a private company called Southern European Exploration, and we came into Eastern Europe looking for opportunities as Eastern Europe was opening up. It was just after the Balkan Wars. It was still a little bit tense. We came in and we helped the Serbian government rewrite their mining law. We helped them rewrite their concession law. We became the first company to be granted an exploration permit for metals in that country in over 40 years and maybe 50 years in time. And that opened the door for foreign investment in Serbia. And we were specifically focused in the Timuk Magmatic Complex, which is an area, it's a geological terrain in eastern Serbia that is Europe's largest historic copper and gold producing area. And we believe there were some excellent geological models that could be applied that would lead to additional discovery. And oh boy, we're rewrite. Part and parcel to our business model, we developed assets in Serbia. We sold them off as part of a merchant banking deal for cash, shares, and a royalty. So now, there's a phenomenal discovery, largest uh, copper gold discovery in the history of Europe is being advanced, and we have a one-half of 1% royalty covering that. That will come into production in 2022. The resources on that, they include a porphyry zone at depth, which is over 1.5 billion tons at 1% copper equivalent, including a gold credit, which is fantastic. And to have a half percent royalty on that is a phenomenal asset for us. We're very much looking for it to come into production in 2022 and start to see incremental cash flow, which we believe will grow over time. And that's a company maker embedded in our portfolio. And it's just a great example of the optionality that is provided by having a portfolio of royalties around the world that are being advanced with other people's money and expertise. And we're always exposed to that optionality of additional discovery within our mineral royalty footprint. Given all that you've stated... Where is the potential upside? Is it when the market turns around or the continual coming online of additional royalties? How does that work? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And what you're talking about is the alpha aspect of our company and how we're outperforming our competition and good things emanating organically from our portfolio, which I believe in 100%. That's why I continue to buy my own stock here. All my trades are reported, of course, and the beta component and the beta component being the overall market. And the answer is, I think that both are going to occur. We're going to continue to see growth of the value of our portfolio that we have in existence today, in addition to new things that we are continually acquiring. particularly taking advantage of the bad market that we have today, in addition to a return of more healthy capital markets in the natural resource sector. And those two combined could propel our valuation substantially, in my opinion. Essentially, in my opinion, you're a producer without actually being a producer. You're piggybacking along the assets that are producing right now. And therefore, in my opinion, your stock could also be considered potentially undervalued based on that fact alone in this market. 
good point, Ellis. We're sitting here with over $70 million Canadian dollars in the bank, no debt, portfolio royalties around the world. We're in a very strong position, excellent deal flow, long history, decade and a half history of acquiring prospective mineral rights and getting them sold astutely and growing a portfolio royalties. This company's in fantastic shape and I put my money where my mouth is. I keep buying the stock. Dave, tell us about the share structure of the company. We have about 82 million shares issued and outstanding, about 90 million fully diluted. We trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol EMX, and on the New York Stock Exchange, ticker symbol EMX, and thus the name EMX Royalty Corporation. Well, Dave, I look forward to seeing you at the upcoming Sprott Conference in Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I'll see you in Vancouver, else. I've been speaking with David Cole, the president and CEO of EMX Royalty Corp trading on the TSX Venture Exchange and on the New York Stock Exchange as EMX. Go to the company's website, emxroyalty.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources, trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Aubin Resources is a Canadian gold exploration company with significant projects in British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon. Hey, Jim, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Alice. You recently announced the commencement of a diamond drilling operation at the Force Kerr Gold Project in BC's Golden Triangle and the completion of drilling at the Justin Gold Project in the Yukon. We're off to a blazing start up in the uh, Force Kerr area, which is the Golden Triangle, northwestern BC. We just started drilling just last week. I believe we're on our second hold right now. We've got the opportunity this year to do smarter drilling, drilling in places we'd like to have gotten to last year but couldn't because we didn't have the drill pads authorized by the government at that time. We do now. So we've got a lot of areas we want to go back into in the north boundary zone and we're doing that right now and then we're going to be heading south to the south boundary zone and we've got a bigger crew on the ground doing more geochemistry work, sampling, and they're going to stay ahead of the drill and generate more targets. And we also have the advantage this year of a very big airborne magnetic survey we did over the whole boundary zone, which was five kilometers long and two kilometers wide. And it's given us a pretty good view of some deeper seated structures. You know, they could be involved in whatever's brought the gold into this area because it's highly mineralized, the whole boundary zone. There's, it's, it really is highly mineralized. And we've only been drilling shallow depths. I don't think we really encountered any mineralization. Everything was above 125 meters. The holes were much shorter. We're going deeper this year. We're looking at structure. We're going to test a bunch of theories. But at the same time, we've got some areas there that we think we can duplicate what we've done in the past. So I think we're off to uh, a good start, and I think this is going to be a good season. You know, we're going to start with 5,000 meters, and we have the potential to go as big as we want, really. We can go to another 10,000 meters like we did last year. And then as far as the Justin goes, we basically just completed 17 rotary air blast holes and then four diamond drill holes around the POW zone, which we discovered back in 2012, which was a fairly sizable intrusion-related gold system. This is what we've come to conclude from that early program. Then we stopped. Everything ended up in the Yukon, and it's taken until the last few years to get back up there. So back in 2017, I started doing some sampling near where we had drilled the intrusion-related system called the POW zone. Just to the side of it, about a kilometer, we, the last two years, came up with a new zone. We called it the Lost Ace because it's extremely similar to Golden Predator's Three Aces 
project, which they've got right next door to us. That whole project is much higher grade. Actually, they have a lot of coarse gold. We've encountered it in sampling and now trenching, and this year we're using a rotary air blast system, which is it's a type of drill that, yeah, it's good for the next step from trenching. So you can get to consistent depth of 35 meters, maybe up to 50. It's a wider diameter drill, and it gives you a good indication of what you're looking at, especially in that type of system, because it's not the intrusion-related system that we have just beside it at the POW zone. It's orogenic in nature. It's older. It's associated to very coarse gold. So what we're doing now is just waiting for results. We've done 17 holes there now, completed, and we're finished, and then we've done the four diamond drill holes around the POW zone, and we're looking for what we call overprinting of the two systems, one young, one old, and seeing if they influence either one. Because if you have a big intrusion coming up and it's going to fracture out in the country rock and you've got this orogenic gold system sitting there, is it going to get remobilized with fluids and more gold into the system? Or does it come the other way? The high grades or older system, does it come into the younger intrusion? That's kind of the theory we're working on. Right now, we're waiting on results to come back. The assays have been in for three weeks now. We should be getting news anytime. Well, anytime certainly is good news, especially if it happens uh, during the month of July, and if not, certainly early August. But Jim, my question is this. Let's say you define significant grade in the Yukon. Doesn't that make you a target for some of the majors up there? Then how quickly could that transpire into a potential transaction? Well, I would think it would take more drilling to de-risk, so another season anyways. The only way to get claims up in that area of the Yukon, because they're in negotiations with the First Nations groups, you can't stake claims up there right now. It's all frozen. The only way you can get access to the area is buying another company's position, the ground they already have. That whole area is called relief from assessment, so we have that ground without doing any work. It's all been frozen in time, basically, so we've had that all this time from 2011. You know, we really only did work back into 2012. And we still own the Justin project and to the north of it, the HIT project, which we really haven't even looked at yet. Anybody who wants to come in and they like what we're doing, they can't stake around us. They have to do something with us. When did it get frozen, Jim? That happened right around 2014. I'm trying to remember 2014-ish, give or take a year, because when they're in negotiations with the First Nations, they just stopped all staking. But if you already have it, you're grandfathered, and when they come to treaty agreements, then the clock starts again. Guys might only have a few months left, they might have a few years left, but in the meantime, they think it's going to be till about 2000, I think it was 2022, actually, that they're going to be frozen till. I'm thinking this entire season then going into the fall between both projects that you have that you're you've been working on and you continue to work on that we should see some significant news flow well we should have news coming hopefully sooner than later out of the yukon and then the forest Kerr last year once we started getting news because it took a while to get it going because as further you go into the summer the longer the lineups are at the labs and there aren't many labs to choose from we've got two and they're both the same company one's in Kitimat, one's in prince george they're they're only 400 miles apart and then as you've got more people drilling this year up in the golden triangle there's more substantially more a lot more juniors and then there's a lot more interest in certain areas not only ours you know between us and just nip mine and skeena uh, at the eske and eske mining to the north you've got the glory creek look like there's going to be a fair amount of work there this year which is newmont and tech to the south you've got a lot going on with ashton there's an awful lot down south going on and that's going to back things up it's just the nature of the game i think by the time we ended last year it was up to six weeks turnaround But this year, you know, once you get it rolling, then it probably by the end of August into September, they start rolling. 
and you got to keep it constant. Well, we're always attracting new audience members all the time. So let's talk about the share structure of your company and let everybody know what potential might be. Um, yeah, well, the share structure, most recent update, about 116 million shares outstanding, 137 fully diluted, which has changed. There's been a lot of warrants exercise, so I'm getting that updated right now. Market caps, we call it 128 million. And as far as investors go, we've got some very significant funds, but our largest shareholder now is Eric Sprott. Oddly enough, he's also now the largest shareholder again of Golden Predator. He just took a large private placement financing with them. As far as insiders and management, we've got about 15%. I've got a couple of funds, a red plug here in Canada, and then OTP fund out of Europe, our major participants too, and they'll vary from 5% to 10%. Eric Sprott's just over over 10, or was, sorry, we just raised a little bit of money just to do the Yukon property this year. Instead of spending the money we raised for the Golden Triangle, I just raised a million bucks. Now that was applied to the Justin property. Let's take a look at the big picture with regard to gold right now in the market. It, it's picked up. It's not as sluggish as it was. And there's certainly companies like yours that, in my opinion, and it's an opinion, might be potentially undervalued. What would you have to say to that? I kind of believe you. I think there's been some major structural changes in the big picture in the gold market. It broke some serious thresholds and kept going. And now it's, you know, it's up over 1,400. There's something good going on. Lots of theories, but it's probably got more to do with the Fed than anything else. But you've also got countries like Venezuela is kind of finished selling. And you've got other countries in the world that are buying. One of the major things I realized when I was just over in Europe and talking to a lot of very smart family wealth people, there are some big buyers in the market and their countries. Jim, where'd you go? I was in Switzerland, Germany, and Frankfurt, and then over in London. And the conference I was at in London was really good. It was strictly family wealth, and it's a new group that has tapped into this association in Europe that represents 3,200 family wealth groups. What I've noticed is that anything that is being produced is certainly being bought as well. There's no lack of demand. No. As a matter of fact, that category in the food chain, like the producers and the near-term guys and the mid-tier producers, their prices are firming up. And there's been a fair amount of M&A. Jim, it's always a pleasure, a real treat to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you at the Sprout Conference coming up at the end of the month. Thanks for joining me today in the program. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. You're going to yep. be there, See right? See you there. Okay. Yep. Cheers. Thanks, yep. Jim. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. I've been speaking with James Pettit, the president and CEO of Aubin Resources. Trading as ABN on the TSX Venture Exchange and in the U.S. as ABNAF. Find their logo on our website, ellosmartreport.com. We also exist in podcast form. Find us on TuneIn Radio, iTunes, or try your favorite podcast app. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dr. William Willoughby, the CEO of Cypress Development Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CYP and in the U.S. as CYDVF. Cypress Development is focused on developing its 100% held Clayton Valley Lithium Project in Nevada. The company's Clayton Valley Project is located immediately east of Albemarle's Silver Peak Mine, North America's only lithium brine operation. Exploration by Cypress has discovered an extensive deposit of leachable lithium-bearing claystone at surface adjacent to the brine field. The size of the discovery makes the Clayton Valley Project a premier target with the potential to impact the future production of lithium in North America. Bill, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Great being back with you. If you wouldn't mind, catch us up on the Clayton Valley Project. Cypress's 
main project that we have is Clayton Valley Lithium Project. It's located just southwest of Tonopah, Nevada, about halfway between Las Vegas and Reno. And what we're looking at there is a very large sedimentary hosted lithium deposit. It's in clays, and it's right at the surface. It's about 2 billion ton resource containing about 9 million tons total of lithium carbonate. So quite a significant resource on the world stage, lithium projects. Deposit's great as far as its location, has access to it, power nearby, and it sits at the surface, as I said, that has no overburden, and it's an acid leachable clay. So what we're looking at with the project is taking it in kind of a conventional acid leaching process, putting it into agitated tank leach with sulfuric acid and extracting the lithium from it, and from there, extracting the lithium from solution. What is unique about this particular process that you have as opposed to other projects in the area or in North America? Well, it's really in the space of clays now. It's not all that unique. It's almost like we're following the same sort of process flow sheet as you might have for oxide copper or oxide cobalt. Certainly the Chinese are into rare earths and they extract rare earths using a sulfuric acid leach from clays. So that portion of it's not really unique. There's other projects that are advancing Lithium Americas and Ioneer have two claystone deposits that are also looking at sulfuric acid leaching. It is unique in the space of lithium projects because of 60% of the world's lithium comes out of brines, which are like oil field brines. There are solutions that are pumped out from subsurface and evaporated in evaporation ponds. Chile and Argentina are the big producers of that. 40% of the world's lithium comes out of hard rock pegmatites, which green bushes in Australia is the big dog in that, and that's more of a conventional mine mill where you take the ore, you crush it, grind it, and recover it by flotation and then ship a concentrate off to wherever you're headed, most likely Asia. You are embarking on a pre-feasibility study for the Clayton Valley Lithium Project. Tell us about how that is going to progress. Well, we completed a preliminary economic assessment, a PEA study in October last year, which had positive, robust economics to it. Since that time, we've been working steadily on uh, metallurgy. That's the big driver in the project is can you actually extract and recover the lithium from the clays? So that's the main focus. Mining on this is relatively simple. But we had a drilling program, started in March, ended in April. We added a number of infill holes, which we're using now for metallurgy. Those confirmed the assumptions in the PEA. Pre-feasibility studies progressing. We anticipate that it will be completed this summer. Everything is along the line of the pre-feasibility studies falling into place. We just announced in a press release that we had completed a bulk sample, which we're using for phase two of the PFS, which is focusing on extracting the lithium from solutions, from the pregnant leach solution. The bulk sample that was leached was 100 kilos. That was about 400 times the size of any sample we'd been testing prior to that. That was quite successful. We had 85% extraction of the lithium with acid consumption that was right along line with the PEA of 124 kilos a ton on acid consumption. So pretty positive as far as the progress is going right now for the pre-feasibility study, what we're looking at is phase two, which is concentrating on recovering the lithium from solution. With that, we're looking at how we actually handle the solution in the leach, how we concentrate it either through evaporation or ion exchange, and how we get the lithium out to a final product. Give us a snapshot of what this project could look like in the future once you have the data to proceed forward with further development of the project. It's sizable. With a project that size, how is that a game changer potentially? Well, it's certainly significant in terms of Nevada and U.S. production of lithium. We targeted 25,000 tons a year of LCE lithium carbonate equivalent as our production goal out of the PEA. Our 
PFS looks like it'll be on track for that sort of number. To do that, we would have a 15,000 ton a day surface mine, no strip ratio to that. So basically we're handing 15,000 tons of material into a process that looks like a conventional leach process. It could be scalable upwards or downwards from that. Most likely we'd like to go upwards over time. And you can see something that might be maybe a double on that size going forward. Let's talk about the share structure of the company. We've got about 80 million shares out. Our share structure is distributed between mostly retail investors, a few insiders. There's no real dominant position in the company as far as shares. And our stock is trading about 20 cents. So we're about a $15 million market cap right now. Bill, tell us about what's happening in the next few months. Well, our first main driver is finishing the PFS and getting out this summer. After that, we'll be looking to do, say, uh, more studies in advance of uh, progressing to a feasibility study. With that in mind, we are looking and trying to size ourselves towards a pilot plant that would support the feasibility study. And then we'll also be doing some optimization studies looking at, say, potential byproducts out of the material and ways to cut costs. Well, Bill, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Hope to see you soon. Well, thank you, Alice. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. William Willoughby, the CEO of Cypress Development Corporation, trading a CYP on the TSX Venture Exchange and CYDBF in the U.S. Visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They've paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.